The reading is on page 1131. It's Romans 3, verses 21 to 26. But now a righteousness from God, apart from law, has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified freely by his grace, through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice, because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time, so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have acted in time and space in history, that you've ensured that there's a reliable record of your events and your uh, verbal revelation, which is the explanation of those events recorded for our benefit. We pray today that we might understand and that we might benefit from our understanding, particularly as uh, these verses are probably the most important in the Bible. Amen. Well, like many of you, I'm partial at the weekend to see a bit of quality television. I usually have to wait till about half past ten on Saturday and Sunday, but match of the day and match of the day two come on and it makes my weekend. I'm not religious about it, I don't always watch them, but I enjoy them. Now, in football, the one thing you expect from a referee is fairness. You expect him to apply the rules of the game correctly fairly, justly. You expect all the decisions to be the right ones. In fact, a referee can literally cause a riot if he doesn't execute fairness. We all have an innate sense of fairness, of what's right and what's wrong. And it's particularly stirred up, I think, in football matches if you happen to be, you know, partisan, if you are really a supporter of one side rather than the other. But whichever side we're on, we want the referee to be fair, otherwise it ruins the game. And we expect God to be fair. And today we come to look at these two verses in the book of Romans, two verses in which God reveals his righteousness in the way that he solves what is his problem and which at the same time is our problem. So here's the outline. You'll also find the outline on the, 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 the service sheet. I don't know if you realise that God has a problem. He can't actually do anything. He has, above all, to be consistent with his character. He can't do something which contradicts his character. And so he has a problem. Uh, being God, of course, he is also has the ability to work out a solution. And while he's working out that solution, which is the problem he has with the fact that we are not as we should be and that we are sinful, it could, he could face the accusation that um, what has he done? You know, Paul's writing in around about 58 uh, AD. You know, what's he been doing? 
throughout, well, at least two or three thousand years of known kind of history at his time. It would appear that he's rarely kind of intervened and sort of sorted out the mess. He's just let it carry on. Well, he's using this as an opportunity to flag up the fact that God has been acted mercifully. He's been taking his time, orchestrating all the variables so that they can come together to achieve the solution. As we are about to kind of enter the season of Advent, and uh, we're heading up to Christmas, and you think of all the various predictions in different parts of the Old Testament through different prophets, how all of those things, you know, the place of Jesus' birth, etc., all those kind of things which Jesus could not have rigged. I mean, there are certain things he could have done, but he could not have rigged where he was born when he was a baby. Um, and uh, they, all those variables come together in the arrival of Christ into the world. Well, back to this morning. When God um, uh, does demonstrate his righteous character, in other words, he's saying that he's, he's showing that he is just, and when he does demonstrate publicly his righteous way to justify, so he's also called the justifier, the one who makes us right with him, if we have faith in him, all becomes clear. And then lastly, we'll see how a word we pick up today in these passages fits in with other aspects of what's called the atonement, the way in which we are made one with God. We'll mostly concentrate on the ones in red, God's solution, and how the word we learn fits in with other aspects of the atonement. So God has a problem. How can God maintain his justice while forgiving unjust people that the Bible calls sinners. Now, although God is merciful and gracious and compassionate, he is also righteous. The Bible even says he's wrathful. Don't think in terms of some capricious, grumpy old so-and-so sitting on a cloud who wakes up, has a bad day, and chucks a few thunderbolts down at us to kind of satisfy his kind of aggravation. He's not capricious. He's consistent. It's his uh, righteous indignation. And he can't lower his righteous standards. He can't just kind of wink an eye and say, yeah, boys will be boys, let the lads have a laugh, you know, let bygones be bygones. No, he must judge sin. He has to do so, he has done so, by nailing every sin, past, present and future, on his son. Hence God's wrath, his holy anger, has been appeased, we might say, by the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. Salvation is infinitely costly to God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. But it's absolutely free to you and me. Now if you struggle with this concept, consider that God's intolerance towards sin is like the intolerance of a surgeon who insists on sterile instruments for an operation. A surgeon's demand for a pure operating environment is not an angry reaction to the presence of bacteria. Rather, it's an inseparable part of being a surgeon. To expose the surgeon's scalpel to bacteria would result in contamination. And you would not get upset that your surgeon insists on absolute cleanliness in the operating room, where even a speck of dirt could lead to infection. You would insist on absolute purity under those conditions. 
You would demand that your surgeon be completely intolerant of any impurity. If you understand a surgeon's wrath against contamination in a hospital operating room, you can understand God's wrath against sin. God is perfect and sinless in every detail and his character demands that he deal with the slightest contamination of sin. He also knows that sin leads to infection and to total corruption. And for those reasons, he must judge sin. And he does so by coming up with a solution. And we've read this morning that that solution is that God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement or propitiation through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. The word propitiation refers to the satisfaction of God's righteous anger so that he can now deal with us graciously. It's a sacrifice which takes away wrath. It is a wrath quencher, if you like, which satisfies God's righteous, just anger. Now, some Christians, this particular lady, Dolores Williams, who's a theology professor in New York, told a gathering, I don't think we need a theory of atonement at all. Atonement has to do so much with death. I don't think we need folks hanging on crosses and blood dripping and weird stuff. We just need to listen to the God within. In the heart and soul of the deities, we're all loved, and it doesn't matter who we're sleeping with. Now, probably the only thing in that extreme statement that we might possibly find ourselves in some agreement with is that we find all this blood sacrifice stuff a bit strange, weird even. But strange as it may seem, getting our heads around it will pay dividends as it is the explanation of how peace with God and having a cleansed conscience are actually achieved. Now, God is holy. In some ways, he's like the sun, and we're like a comet. We're like comets that fly close to the sun. Astronomers call them sun grazers. But if they fly too close, and if they get to 62,000 miles, that's the kill zone. They just evaporate. They cease to exist. They are zapped out of existence. The sun will not let them get near, and nor will God. Adam and Eve sinned, and they were kicked out of the Garden of Eden, out of the presence of God. Their way back was barred. Moses, when God was well on the way to working out his kind of uh, uh, solution to his problem and to working out his plan of salvation for us, when Moses encountered God through the burning bush in Sinai, he was told to take his shoes off, for it was holy ground, the presence of God. And he was told not to look at God, because no sinful person could look at God and live. So he was told to cover his eyes. And I think we are instinctively like that in our default, in the state in which we're born into this world. We are born with an instinct that encountering God would be bad news. We fear death. 
We fear facing him. We know he will expose everything about us. We're aware that God is pure and clean and that we are by default contaminated. There's no chance of us getting near him unless there is some means by which we can be decontaminated. So throughout the Old Testament, God is educating them through this kind of what to us seems a rather strange ritual sacrificial system of blood and gore and sacrifice. He was educating them so that they would understand and it would register when he provides the solution which did work and that would one day enable all people to be decontaminated, to be cleaned up so that they could enter the presence of God and be accepted and not eradicated. Basically, he's saying to these guys in the Old Testament, if you face God, you face death. What you need is another life to take the place of your life so that you can have free access, just access, to God himself. So here goes a brief explanation of their sacrificial system. This is the tabernacle, this is the kind of tent that they were told to erect when they were wandering around for 40 years in the desert of Mount Sinai. And you'll see that, uh, oh, whoops, sorry, no. You'll see that um, there's the, 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 the entry gate. So they bring these animals in who are going to be slaughtered instead of them, as it were, dying in the presence of God. So they kill the animals on the altar. The priests then kind of have a good clean-up, wash their hands and all that. They go into the, uh, the, most, the, the Holy of Holies place. They go through this curtain. There's a load of other bric-a-brac and stuff, which all has significance, but we don't need to know about that at the moment. There's an incense, uh, an altar of incense of prayers. And then he goes through this big curtain, which is the veil, which was split in two when Jesus died. Because this curtain is the barrier between access to what, in this symbolism, is um, the, presence, the place where the presence of God on earth is. And in here is the Ark of the Covenant, which is thought of as being a combination of God's mercy seat and his footstool here on earth. So in this kind of symbolic way, the presence of God is here. And once a year, the high priest alone, only he can go through into the presence of God after he's gone through an elaborate system of uh, sacrifice and of washing and cleansing. And it's there to um, register it all. You see it in this one a bit more clearly. It's, uh, there you are, there's the Ark of the Covenant. There's the curtain that uh, when Jesus does the real deal, gets split into from top to bottom. And... Uh, If you look at it in this way, that's even clearer. The entrance, the altar, the wash basin, the holy place, and then for the high priest, the most holy place, the presence of God. The Ark of the Covenant, on which the high priest would splash the blood on, because he is doing that, he's covering it, because that is symbolic of covering our sins through the blood which has been shed. Life is given so that life might live. And so the early Christians who were all Jewish, um, they would understand all this stuff. 
and uh, they would know what the tabernacles signify, that it is uh, an earthly tabernacle, that the sacrifice was the blood of animals, that it was presented by the high priest. The purpose of it was to placate God's wrath against their sin. What it gained was access into the Holy of Holies, the place where God was on earth, and the effect would be to ceremonially and ritually clean. And the result, well, it did you all right for a year, but it needed repeating. Now in the book of Hebrews, the author writes of an act which cleanses our consciences from acts which lead to death so that we may serve the living God. And that act, where there's loads of blood, just a few, the first part of verse 14 of chapter 9 of Hebrews reads this, How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death, so that we may serve the living God? So back to our comparison. When they knew that, they were able to compare what was going on in the Old Testament and what had now happened in the New Testament. So the location, the tabernacle in the wilderness, or as it subsequently became, the temple in Jerusalem. But the other sphere of activity is actually the court of heaven. It's kind of on the big, grand scale. The sacrifice of one is the blood of animals, a sacrifice of the other is the blood of Christ. In one, the sacrifice is presented by the high priest. In the other, the Lord Jesus Christ presents his sacrifice on our behalf to God the Father himself. And the purpose of both is to placate God's wrath against sinners. You see, God's moral character is consistent and from that character, right and wrong in this world are determined. We all have consciences. Just as God's holiness cannot be polluted by sin, so too his justice can never be compromised. He always has to punish sin, which is the rebellion against himself. And he punishes it by death. And there would be many sufferers, if you think about it, of injustice who, when they met God for the first time, would say to him, if he didn't do anything, if he was not just, if he didn't act righteously, they would say, why didn't you, if you're God and all-powerful, do something about that awful thing which happened to me or my loved ones? We expect God to be fair. And God is also fair. He's merciful and loving. He wants to restore relationship with the wayward, with the prodigals, because we've all gone adrift and all gone awry. But how can he do that and uphold justice? And the answer is to provide a sacrifice. In the Old Testament, it was animals as a kind of educational way. But in the New Testament, it is by himself, in the person of Jesus. He's punished instead of us. Well, let's continue with our comparison. What does the sacrifice obtain? Well, in the old system, it meant that the high priest could access the most holy place, the place where God was on earth. But in Christ, it enables access to God in heaven. The effect in the Old Testament is that you are ceremonially clean. 
outside, external, but in through the New Testament, through what Christ has done, you get internally cleaned up. You have your sins forgiven. And the result, in the old system, you have to repeat it every year. But in the new system, once you've done business with Christ, once you've been penitent and accepted his offer, then you are acquitted once and for all and forever. Now, of course, if you've been living at the time of uh, this letter to the Romans was written, around about 58, 59 AD, or the, the letter to the Hebrews, uh, similarly, then uh, you might have thought, if you were a Jew and you'd become a Christian, you think, well, okay, God, a few times in the Old Testament you intervene and sorted out grave acts of injustice in the world, but most of the time you seem to have kept your distance and that you've kind of overlooked these things. Well, Paul comments that, no, to demonstrate his righteousness, because in the forbearance of God, he passed over sins previously committed. Although the death of Christ for the sins of humankind was planned in eternity, in the past, and prophesied in the Old Testament, it didn't become an earthly reality until 2,000 years ago. And therefore the Old Testament believers were forgiven on account of what was about to happen, but hadn't then happened. So people like Abraham, who are, we're told, justified by faith, they, they knew that somehow they were in the wrong with God and that God, to be God, must have a way in which he can forgive them. They just put their trust in God. They didn't know how he could possibly do it, but they believed he somehow could. And so he was taking his time to work it out. And during that time, he hadn't kind of revoked the punishment for sin. He'd merely suspended punishment. Now, we could say that Old Testament justification was through faith in a promised saviour, one who was to come. Whereas we who live after Christ look backwards and we can see that God has provided a saviour for us. The Old Testament believers looked forward to what God would someday do, whereas we're able to look back to what Christ has already done. Prior to the cross, Old Testament believers who died were in paradise on credit. That's to say their sins had not been paid for historically, even though they'd received some of the benefits from their faith. The same thing happens when we purchase something with a credit card and enjoy possessing the purchased item even though we've not yet paid for it. God's righteousness was shown at the cross in that God righteously judged and punished every last sin that human beings had committed or will ever commit. And verse 26 tells us that God provided salvation for the demonstration of his righteousness at the present time so that he would be both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. In other words, he demonstrates the righteousness of his character through punishing the sins of human beings on Jesus, who's taking their place on the cross. And through that, he is able to then justify us, who are the beneficiaries 
of that. God has revealed his justice through the cross. We deserve death and eternal exclusion from the presence of God. That would have been justice. But instead of getting what we deserve, we were not given what we deserve. That is mercy. But God has gone further than exercising mercy. He's gone a whole step further, as we saw in chapter 3, verse 24. He has given us grace, which is receiving what we don't deserve. It is a free gift of eternal life. And that is the gospel. That's what Christians are on about. God has acted with justice by excluding his son from his presence because his son is carrying the sins of the world upon him. But he also acted as the justifier by allowing us to be set free from sin by trusting in Jesus and his work, a work that enabled God the Father to change his attitude towards the sinful. As we'll sing later, Justice divine was satisfied, a grand and full atonement made. God for a guilty world has died. That's the Christian God. That is the God who is our saviour, who does something for us that we could never do for ourselves. There is no one else like him. He has created and orchestrated a sovereign plan that you and I would never have dreamt up. He does for us what we could never do for ourselves. And then, how does this word in verse 26, propitiation, how does it fit in with other words which are used to help us understand what are the consequences of Jesus dying on the cross for us? Well, Let's take them in turn. These are ways in which we, aspects of looking at the cross, don't mix them up or you get in a right kind of mental mess. You mustn't mix metaphors, as they say. Now, one line of thought is that we are guilty before God and what we actually need is to be justified before God. And we read in Romans 5, 9 that we have been justified. That's declared right by his blood. Another feature of our default humanity is that we are alienated from God. There is a breach of the relationship. And what we need is reconciliation. And we read in Colossians 1.20 that God was pleased through Jesus to reconcile to himself all things by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Another picture is that we're enslaved. You know, we live in a world and um, we need desperately enlightenment. We need to be illuminated. We live in the dark. We live in a world where, you know, we're, we're trapped. We do do things which are wrong and sinful. Some people get quite obsessive and they get really stuck. So we're enslaved. We're trapped in that world. We need, most of all, to be liberated or redeemed. We need to be bought, paid for, out of it. And we read in Ephesians 1.7 that in him we have redemption through his blood. And the one that we have touched on today is the thought that we are defiled, that we're somehow contaminated, that we're unclean before God. 
And what we most desperately need is to be decontaminated. We need to be cleaned up. And we read in from Hebrews that the blood of Christ will cleanse our consciences from acts which lead to death. So four aspects of the cross. Guilty and justified are legal concepts drawn from the world of the law courts. Alienated and reconciled are relational terms. They're drawn from the world of the family. Enslaved and redeemed are drawn from the economic world of slavery. And defiled and cleansed are drawn from this sacrificial world with its blood and gore with which we are less familiar. Now did you notice that um, the word that was common to each as I read each of those verses out? We have now been justified by his blood. God was pleased through Jesus to reconcile to himself all things by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. In him we have redemption through his blood. The blood of Christ will cleanse us, our consciences, from acts which lead to death. The recurring word is blood, the act of Christ dying and suffering on the cross where he shed his blood, where his body was broken, where he, when he was suffering there, bore the sins of the world upon him. And he was estranged from God the Father and God the Holy Spirit for the very first time in his experience. You have God the Son on the cross saying, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the sky going black. He is suffering exclusion from the presence of God on our behalf. That is the central act of God's salvation plan. And all these other ways of getting a glimpse of it help us to understand it. But at the centre of it, there is his suffering on the cross. Where because of the death of Christ, in our place, our, in the place of our sins, the wrath of God against our sins can be placated. Or in biblical language, propitiated which means that it satisfied God's justice and so he would not look on the sins of the penitent adversely. In fact, he is able to remit their sins and acquit us of them and forgive us. This chart is really just a way of encapsulating a simple but really crucial point that these achievements of the atonement, justification, reconciliation, redemption and purification, only make sense if there is foundationally the substitution of Christ's death in the place of the sinners. This is what lies at the very heart of the Christian faith. His death enables a change in God's attitude to the penitent. God is said to be propitiated and our sins can then be removed or in biblical speak expiated. Roger Nicholl called it the linchpin of the gospel. A linchpin is a mechanical contrivance. Here you can see it on a wheel. It's the black kind of 
bit of metal that goes straight through the axle and holds the wheel in place. He says, a linchpin is a mechanical contrivance that makes possible the unified function of several other parts. If the linchpin is removed, the other parts no longer perform their own functions, but float away in futility. This, he says, I believe, is precisely what occurs in the doctrine of the atonement. Thus, penal substitution of Christ is the vital centre of the atonement, the linchpin without which everything else loses its foundation and flies off the handle, so to speak. So in this picture, take away that metal linchpin that goes through the axle and holds the wheel in place, take that away and all the parts of the wheel fall apart. In fact, take it away and that cart will probably go no more than half a revolution the wheel will fall off, it will break into pieces, they will not work. They need the lich pit to hold it all together and make it work. On Friday morning, one of our uh, children sent us a few photographs of what he and his wife had just been up to whilst we had been sleeping in our beds. He sent them on WhatsApp and he said, Morning, Dad. Just been flying. He's the one in the orange jumpsuit, hanging upside down, having just jumped out of an aircraft for the first time in his life with no parachute, but attached to a guy who he'd only just met who does have one, or so he told him. Now, hurtling to Earth at a between 150 and 200 miles per hour, you're doomed, aren't you, really? You're doomed to destruction unless the guy who has the means of your salvation deploys it. Well, the fact that I received the photos does seem to indicate that it was deployed, for which I'm very grateful. But the application of that illustration to us is this, that we're all moving towards physical death, and then to a second death or eternal death unless we ask the Lord Jesus Christ to deploy the means that he has obtained for our survival, and he's willing to do so. For from the beginning, well, before the creation of the universe, they, that is the community of love, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, resolved out of their love to be both just and punish our sin, and at the same time justify us so that we could be right with them. On the cross, the suffering servant, Jesus himself, voluntarily bore that punishment, so satisfying their justice and preventing us from a fate worse than death, on one condition, that we must ask him to include us in his deployment, which he will do. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we do look at this uh, great time period where you have been orchestrating events to solve your big problem of how to forgive us justly and our big problem to gain something which we could not acquire for ourselves, a right status, a right relationship with you. 
we thank you, as we've seen how some of these uh, threads are all woven together, that you achieved this in the death of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that he has been prepared to bear upon himself the penalty of our sins, exclusion from your presence, and we're thankful to it. May we have both hearts of gratitude if we claim that gift, and if we never have, we pray that we might reflect thoroughly on it and achieve for ourselves, by your grace, the gift of eternal life and the forgiveness of our sins and peace with you. Amen.